Good evening, Pastor Brown. Now, through December 15th, collecting toys for the Salvation Army treasures for children, bring them in. We'll be collecting new toys and children's clothing, also of all sizes, now through December 15th for the New Kensington branch of the Salvation Army. And items can be dropped off at the information table. Thank you. And this is uh, something that's close to my heart, close to all of your hearts, I know. And a way to demonstrate the love of God that's poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5. So Romans 1, and this is our third lesson on Romans the Epistle. Romans the Epistle. For note takers, caps, R-T-E. And the notes are going to be on the, the website. I'm trying to do, it's a little extra work, but it's very helpful to me to do. But we're going to, I'll be typing all of the messages. That doesn't mean I'll be going by them in the spoken versions all exactly. There's always innovation. But if you're serious about this study in Romans, then I really recommend, I'll say, reading the messages on the website. There will be a, there's a tag where you can hit the messages. I'm very delighted that what Jeremy Key did for our Revelation series, he put up the whole study notes, which is 1,878 pages. So if you ever get bored, you, all the TV and the news and all the stuff that you're tired of, read a couple I've actually been doing it. I'm checking and judging my past doctrine by reiterating it, rereading it quite a bit myself. But the Romans, as far as I can do it, will be up there in writing. That, to me, is the most important and final way that the doctrine should be read and understood. And you can study it that way. So tonight will be the obedience that is faith. And let's take a couple of moments of silent preparation. Father, we know that there was a very solemn occasion today with the funeral of a New Kensington police officer, Brian Shaw. And we ask that you will minister your consolation by the Spirit to this community, to his fellow officers, to the police force in this area, to the whole community, most of all to his family and his friends. And that you will personally deliver that consolation to them as you've already done today through the word and through the spirit we know. We thank you for this opportunity, another occasion in which our Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted in our midst. We thank you for the privilege, Father, of studying Romans, this wonderful epistle that you've inspired about your son, all about your son. 
And so tonight, may our fellowship be just that. And may our lives lived afterwards be just that. All about your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. I want to reiterate what is an inclusio for the epistle called Romans. The long title for our study, Romans the Epistle, will be Romans the Epistle, Reading Romans with the Light On. That's the long title, Reading Romans with the Light On. And there's going to be many applications to that. Romans chapter 1 and I'll be doing my own translation throughout. And that may even mean that once in a while I'll do some changes. There's even going to be some amendments from what I taught in Romans, even as recently as Better Call Paul. There are the more you study. And I did have occasion in my absence to study without exception every single day, even with certain urgent things, for about three hours average in the Epistle of Paul to the Romans, studying Karl Barth's commentary from 1933, Leander Keck's from this century, and several good books, one of them called The Apocalyptic Paul, edited by Beverly Gaventa, and also her book called, this is a really catchy title, When in Romans, which was a fantastic treatment of Romans, She's coming up with a commentary pretty soon, but she makes the point in that book, which you can, I recommend it. It's only about 120 pages and easy print, easy reading. She makes the point that the main thing to look for in Romans is the universal horizon, her words, the universal horizon there, the cosmic significance of the salvation in Christ that we have been discovering by the grace of God, and many others are discovering. So, again, this will be my translation, Romans 1.1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, effectively summoned to be an apostle, set apart and limited to the task of preaching the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy writings. Please note, especially in this passage, Christ Jesus, the gospel of God, and through his prophets in the holy writings, in verse 2. This gospel, and this is necessary to add this in parentheses, and the sacred writings. The intention here is not only to have the gospel but also the sacred writings, which we know as the Old Testament. And there's going to be a special emphasis, believe it or not, on the Psalms coming up. This gospel and the sacred writings are all about his son, who is from the seed of David, according to the flesh. That means hereditary heritage or lineage. Designated, says verse 4, as the son of God, according to the spirit of sanctification, designated as the Son of God with power, please note that, according to the spirit of sanctification, by the resurrection from the dead. Verse 5, and please note this phrase, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, to bring about the obedience that is faith to bring about the obedience 
that is faith by all the nations, or we could say in all the nations at first, for the sake of his name. And then, having hit the first five verses, let's hit the last three. Romans 16.25. This is a very controversial passage, so I love it all the more. But in 16.25, it says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you by my gospel... Notice the correspondence in this inclusio, a brackets, the brackets around Romans. We have the gospel of God in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. We have what Paul calls my gospel in 16.25. And the preaching of Jesus Christ. Note here we have Jesus Christ, and in 1.1 1, 1 we have Christ Jesus. We have kind of like a chiastic structure here, Christ Jesus And here, Jesus Christ in the inclusio. According to the apocalypse is the word. I translated that deliberately. It's revelation or disclosure. But we are familiar with that term, apocalypse. And Paul is an apocalypticist. He's a prophet. He's an apostle. He is an apocalypticist. According to the, so let's start again. Now to him who is able to strengthen you by my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ According to the apocalypse of a secret, the word there is mystery, musterion, kept silent for ages of time, kept silent for ages of time, meaning time gone by. But now, verse 626, but now is manifested through the writings of the prophets. Please note in this inclusio, the writings of the prophets in verse 26. Please note the gospel of God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy writings in verse 2. Please note these correspondences. They're extremely important for the interpretation of this epistle as a whole. Known and made known to all the nations. Please note the reference to all the nations. In verse 26, to the obedience that is faith by all the nations or in all the nations. In verse 1-5. To bring about or by the command of the eternal God. Notice the interplay between ages of time where the mystery or the apocalypse of the mystery was kept silent. Note the interplay here with the eternal God. Times in past, but now, by the writings of the prophets, made known to all the nations by the command of the eternal God. And please note this phrase, to bring about the obedience that is faith. To bring about the obedience that is faith. And then verse 27, to the only wise God, Through Jesus Christ, be glory for the ages to come. Amen. Note the interplay between the times gone by and the ages to come. Palos is the first word then in Romans. P-A-L-P-A-U-L-O-S. I promised at the beginning I'm not going to do this. The Greek words in all these places. I'm not going to do that. Just going to do the transliteration because it's maddening to some people 
And because it's, I don't have the time. I don't know how much time I've got to do Romans, but I want to just use the transliteration. Paulos, of course, that's easy to get Paul from. And I suppose if Paul was a woman, his name would be Pauletta. But Paulos for Paul is the first word in the Greek text of Romans. It has significance in many ways. And so I'm trying to do, what I'm going to do is maybe on Sundays, but it'll be mixed up, do messages in which I answer the question, quidsit, the Latin question. Quidsit, what is it? Meaning, what is Romans the epistle as a whole, as an entirety? And then in these midweek times, Wednesdays or Wednesdays and Thursdays, answer the question, onset, is it really so? Is it really so? Can we demonstrate that that is what Romans the epistle is by a verse-by-verse exegesis? My intention, and this is where I ask for prayer, is to have this be a lean commentary, not a wide one, where we're there for 1,500 hours and people fall off and quit just because of the tedium of that many hours. And therefore, I'm not going to do, say everything I can about this word. I just spent 109 hours saying everything I can about Paulos. So I'm not going to say everything I, that there is about Paul. But I want to be lean and accentuate certain things that I think the Holy Spirit is accentuating about Paul. So the first word in the Greek text of Romans has significance in many ways. But among the most important is that Paul himself, once Saul of Tarsus, is a living epistle in himself. He is a living epistle of God's will and God's power in Christ to save. And so he's significant for that reason. In 1 Timothy, and I said I was going to incorporate and weave into the interpretation of Romans the pastoral epistles or content from them. In 1 Timothy 1.15, it is certainly Paul's testimony. And it's a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Save sinners because he justifies, God justifies, rectifies, a better word, as we'll see, the ungodly. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sinners of all kinds. Sinners is all mankind under sin. Therefore, sinners is all mankind. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am first. I am foremost. Paul is like the guy in Psalm 36, 1, when David says, my heart is thinking of an oracle about transgression and the man who is a transgressor and criminal. And that was Paul. If anybody, that's Paul. Of whom I'm first. Protos, he's the first of sinners, meaning he's the worst. Of them. So in himself, Paul is a living testimony of God's will to save by grace, God's will to save sinners, God's will to save by grace. 
There is a terrible Pelagianism in America today, American Pelagianism that emphasizes human choice over divine election, human ability over divine power. That's not what Paul does in the gospel. He is not someone who Americanizes the gospel. And I'll explain what that means down the road. First Timothy 1.15 then. Paul is a testimony of Christ Jesus' power to save. Paul was the human transgressor par excellence. I'll say that again. Paul was the human transgressor par excellence. He's exactly the kind of man that David had in mind when he wrote the 36th Psalm, something that I think will be very important for us maybe even as soon as Sunday. The 36th Psalm is the 35th in the Septuagint. So we continue that maddening habit of trying to... It's important that we understand, though, the Septuagint aspect or the Septuagint translation is most important because it's the most often quoted in the New Testament Greek. So Paul is that guy. He's the kind of man that David had in mind when he wrote the 36th Psalm in the very first verse of that psalm where David wrote of, quote, the oracle within my heart of the transgression of the evildoer. That's Paul or Saul of Tarsus. The transgressor par excellence, whose religiously zealous modus operandi and modus vivendi was to persecute the church of God. And he is the proof, therefore, that God wills to save sinners. In Romans 11.2, Paul speaks as an Israelite. I myself am an Israelite, he said. He does so in order to offer proof in his own being, his own testimony. Proof of the fact that God has not forsaken his people. His inheritance, Israel. Paul is therefore in himself a testimony that God wills to save all of Israel in Romans eleven twenty six, Because Paul himself, the worst of all the temporarily hardened part of Israel, I'll say that again, Paul himself, the worst of all the hardened part of Israel, the temporarily hardened part of Israel, was saved according to God's mercy. As such, he stands on the stage of history as a living symbol of God's will to save all of Israel according to God's mercy. Titus 3.5 comes to mind. It is not by works of righteousness that we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. That Christ Jesus, therefore, came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul is the foremost, means that Paul is the standing symbol of Christ's will to save all sinners. That is, all of humankind. And so it is that the divinely inspired human author of Romans, the epistle, is Paul. Now, 
Let me read your mind. Already, one might be saying in his or her heart, well, if we're going to spend this much time on one word in Romans, how long will it be before we get to the end of this study? And maybe even someone else is saying, yeah, and you ain't no spring chicken. So now that's a good question. Augustine, who began to write an exposition of Romans, gave up when he got to verse 7 of chapter 1. And he said, he just threw up his hands and he declared, it was too vast of an enterprise. I agree with him. But in this study, we will be dealing with the whole... W-H-O-L-E, the entire, the total, the totality of Romans on some occasions. And then with some of the smaller parts, verse by verse, on other occasions. And we will also be going right to its astonishing heart and essence as we do at the same time a fairly lean commentary on it verse by verse. And I must say that I had to be away from you long as I was in order to get a hold on this. So if all you do is a verse-by-verse commentary, you'll never finish. Or a word-by-word one. Not if you try to exhaust all that can be said about every word. This becomes both tedious for the teacher as well as the student's. So for this reason, I'm going to be presenting some of the astonishing heights of Romans from the very start rather than giving up before we get to them. And that's what happens so often. Commentators would start, they'd give up before they got to the beating heart of Romans 5.18, the absolute condemnation of all humankind without exception through the act of one man's disobedience and the absolute rectification by life of all the human race without exception by the obedience, the faithful obedience of one man, Jesus Christ. See, that's a theme already. But if you do the word by word without getting to the heart of the matter quickly, you throw up your hands and say, well, I can't go any further than this. And so let's stick with topics And, of course, we know Augustine. He had a lot of good doctrine, but he had a lot of problems, especially with the Greek language. And that caused some terrible problems. So the longer title of our study is Romans the Epistle, Reading Romans with the Light On. The light's already on it. That means... Several things. For one thing, reading Romans with the light on, that we are proceeding from the start with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 6. Already shining on Paul. Already shining through Paul. And on the epistle that he dictated, probably to an amanuensis or a secretary named Tertius, 
Paul already knows that which the God of this age has veiled and still veils from unbelievers, including Christian unbelievers, by blinding their minds. Paul already knows. By revelation, what the God of this age has veiled, Paul already knows from an unveiling, what the God of this age has veiled. It's a startling, astonishing thing to realize that that which many Christians call God is the God of this age who blinds their minds from the gospel of the glory of Christ, which glory is destined to fill the whole earth. In fact, which already fills the whole earth. Ask the angels around the throne in Isaiah 6. I have two mandates. I have one mandate. That is to serve Christ with my spirit, as Romans 1.8 says Paul did. And I have a very clear mandate from the Holy Spirit that to serve God or Christ with my spirit means to let God maintain in me a spirit of awe that leads to a spirit of audacity. Boldness, confidence, to step out beyond where previous commentators have gone, but then at the same time not to be so proud as to not recognize their contributions. So, Paul knows the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 and Colossians 1.15. Indeed, his writing of this epistle is his proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. Romans 16.25 and 26. I'm finding that to be perhaps the key interpretive passage of all of Romans. And commentators have said everything from Paul didn't write it to it's inauthentic to it's added later, to this and that, but it happens to be, and I think you're already seeing the inclusio, the very interpretation of what Romans is, the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent in God, meaning in silent in God until the writings of the prophets, which means that it didn't wait until the New Testament writings the gospel was already found in the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament. And we'll see how that plays out because Paul aligns himself with these prophets, as we'll see. And so reading Romans with the light on means that Paul already had the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, shining on him. He already knew Romans 11.32, that God was to have mercy on all. When he wrote the indictment on the Gentile pagans and the indictment on the judging Jews and the indictment on the whole world that has to shut its mouth, Paul already knew Romans 11.32. The light of Christ was already shining on Paul. So we're reading Romans with this light on. 
Indeed, his writing of the epistle is his proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the mystery of God's great universal intention. God's unstoppable determination to sum up all things universally under the headship of Jesus Christ. It's my belief that Paul wrote Ephesians before he wrote Romans and that Paul wrote Ephesians and he wrote it before Romans. So he already introduced the mystery of God's intent which is to sum up everything or bring everything under the headship of Jesus Christ. It's recapitulation. And if you want something really good to read, if you've gotten Fleming Rutledge's book on the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ, and you're bogged down in it, skip it. Read the last chapter. It's called Recapitulation. And recapitulation is not just a recap of history. It's a takeover of history where everything is placed under the headship of Jesus Christ. That's the announcement that Paul is making. That's the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to, in alignment with, the secret of God's great universal intention. God's unstoppable determination, not stopped by human will, not stopped by human choice and decision. God's unstoppable determination to sum up all things universally under the headship of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, including things which have been under the headship of the first Adam and under the tyrannical dominion of powers named, and that's why I capitalize them, sin, and death, and the flesh, and exclamation point, even the law. Reading Romans with the light on means many things then. It means that the light of Jesus Christ shines on Romans itself. It means that the light of Christ shines on us as we read Romans and as the Spirit awakens us, as Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, you sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So reading Romans with the light on means that the light of Christ shines on us as we read and as we are awakened by it. It means that the light is on in Romans itself. Not just the light on Romans, but in Romans itself, there is the light. Like reading a book on some device like Kindle, where I read some of my books, where the light comes from within. So you don't need to have a lamp on when you read the Kindle version of books, because the light comes from within. Just like Romans, the light comes from within. This is what means what it means, one of the meanings of reading Romans with the light on, the light on within Romans. And as the scripture says, the exposition of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the ignorant or to the simple or to the naive. So it means that the light on, the light is on in Romans like the light is on when reading a book on some device, like the Kindle or the Nook or whatever they have today, where the light comes from within. 
But it also means reading Romans with the light on means that we are reading Romans in Romans 13, 12 with the armor of light on us. You know what time it is, says the scripture, that salvation, not our salvation, just plain salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. That means cosmic regeneration salvation of all things the reconciliation of all things that moment is closer now than ever before so instead of doing the works of darkness realize that the night has far spent and put on the armor of light so reading romans is a putting on of the armor of light so necessary for our times Romans 13, 12, I find to be as central an exhortation pastorally as Romans 12, 1 and 2 is. So back to our exegesis. Note the balance in Romans 1, 1 to 5 with Romans 16, 25 to 27. Note the balance of Christ Jesus and Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ is the inclusio of Romans. He's the beginning and the goal. He's the alpha and the omega. Even as he's the alpha and the omega in this little verb, anakephalaiao. Anakephalaiao. Alpha, omega. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega of the word that means recapitulation. Anakephalaiao. Kephale, right here in the heart of it. In Ephesians 1.10. And the same word is used in Romans 13.10. All the law being summed up in this, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. That's phenomenal. The Alpha, the Omega. Christ. The Alpha and the Omega of Romans, Christ. His truth embodies the entirety of the epistle. Paul, as a slave of Messiah Jesus, he calls himself. A slave. Not a servant, a slave. Doulos. It's very important that we understand this. Because a a slave of Messiah, Jesus, Christ Jesus, is specifically the slave of the son of David. Who is the messianic king. Christ as the Davidic Messiah, as the Messiah through the lineage of David, is specifically messianic king. And therefore, Paul is announcing himself to be the most honorable possible vocation, an imperial slave, one dedicated, one limited to the will of his king, gladly, not in a servile sense, not in the negative sense of slavery, because slavery to Christ is the only true freedom. So Paul is a slave of Messiah Jesus, specifically the slave of the Messianic King. That Jesus is the Davidic, the A-V-I-D-I-C, that's simply David turned into an adjective, Davidic Messiah. 
in the genealogical line of David means that Jesus Christ is the Messiah King. That makes Paul, again, a slave to the king, an imperial slave, one who is dedicated to the will of the king, not to his own will, which in this case, the will of the king is a saving will. Did you hear that, Will? (laughs) He smiled. He's listening. It's a saving will. The will to save, the will to reconcile, the will to redeem. And this is in accord with the divine salvific intention. Paul is restricted, limited. The word harizo is used, afharizo is used twice here, set apart. But the word horizon is found right in there. There are, there are eight theological functional specialties, as we know, that Lonergan discovered. But one of his students named Robert M. Doran discovered a ninth theological functional specialty, which we will incorporate into our study of Romans. It's called horizons. When Paul said he was set apart or limited, the word is afhorizo, and the word horizon is right in there. And I'll explain that as we continue in the messages. And also Christ is marked out, aphorizo, as the divine son of God. He is limited and distinct from all others as the divine son of God. That's a horizon is involved there. The divine theological functional specialty, the ninth, called horizons. And I think we'll discover a tenth by the time we're done with Romans. You say, what is that? I don't know. I just said, I think we'll discover a tenth. So, Paul is restricted. The horizon is something that's magnificent, but a horizon also means restricted. When I look out over from a mountain or from a beach, the horizon from a beach is different from the horizon from a mountain, but the whole thing about a horizon is that it's limited. And so Paul is limited, restricted, set apart, and appointed to the task of being a herald of the king. If God calls you to this kind of vocation, it appears to be obsession both to yourself and to others. Nothing occupies you other than that. Even in your relationships, which you are to give yourself, you're supposed to be faithful in all the house God gives you. If you're a husband, a father, a grandfather, or a, a worker, or the hundred things that we may be called to do, we do them all, but we are restricted, limited, dedicated, and appointed to this task it's an obsession in one sense but it's not an unhealthy one it is a sense of being restricted to that one vocation to that one will to God's will and it means a dying to self and to self-importance to goals related to this world So Paul is limited, he's restricted, set apart and appointed to the task of being a herald of the king. Hark the herald of the king, Paul. And by that, it means that he proclaims the gospel of God, which, in a succinct definition, is the soul-elevating, head-lifting, faith-eliciting, 
obedience-creating announcement, which was already written by God's prophets who received precognition, God's precogs, who received precognition of the coming of the Messiah, of his suffering and his entry into glory through suffering. The glory into which the Messiah entered is, among other things, the glory of universal kingship. Also to be noted here is the inclusio of this passage with Romans 16, 25 to 27, which speaks of the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation or apocalypse. Please note that word we just spent before our previous study, 513 messages on the apocalypse of John. And we will find many agreements between Paul and John, not only John in Revelation, but John in the Gospel of John, not only John in the Gospel of John, but John in the, especially the first epistle of John the Elder. Wonderful correspondences between Romans and 1 John. We'll be seeing all these things. According to the revelation of the mystery which was kept silent for long ages, that is, the silence of God, but is now revealed through the writings of the prophets. So Paul aligns himself on purpose in this introduction with the prophets, God's prophets, whose message was all about God's son. This doesn't just say that the gospel of God is all about God's son. This says that the writings of the holy prophets are all about God's son. And they are the disclosure. The gospel was promised there, pre-preached there. And the prophet spoke univocally, that is, with one voice, God's voice, about the suffering and the glorification of the Messiah and of the restoration of all things in him. Read Luke 24, verses 26 and 27. And especially Luke twenty four forty four, along with Acts three twenty one. So the very fact that Paul identifies himself first as a slave of Christ Jesus also identifies him with the prophets, because they are called the slaves of Yahweh in Amos three five and six. The slaves of God. The prophets were called the slaves of Yahweh. Paul, in calling himself a slave of Christ Jesus is aligning himself with the prophets who were the slaves of Yahweh, but he's also identifying Christ Jesus as Yahweh in this little introduction. I'm trying to hit things in this lean commentary that you don't find written in commentaries. Because if I just repeated what's in a commentary, wouldn't it be better for me to just say, go read that commentary? And there's some magnificent ones. The most challenging one to me is Karl Barth or... If I'm going to be German, Karl Barth, who was a Swiss theologian. And I read his sixth edition of the Romans. He went through six editions. So he changed up six times. So don't get mad at me if I change up. Like, I don't adopt all of Douglas Campbell's take on Romans 118 to 320. I don't adopt it all. I was excited about it when I first saw it. And I'm still excited about it and think it's pretty cutting edge. But... Studying about 120 hours more, 
There's a little bit more of an amendment going on there. It's a constant. We're on the move constantly, constantly on the move. Our perspective is always changing. Our perceptiveness is always changing. Our horizon is something that's on the move. We're on the move, so our horizon should change. Although what God intends for us to see is a universal horizon. Sunday, I'm going to be bringing something up about that. If I have sufficient time between messages, I can bring these messages with a quality that I never saw before. So Paul aligns himself with the prophets whose message was all about God's son. With the prophets who spoke about apocatastasis pantone without exception. But they also spoke of something that is a lacuna, L-A-C-U-N-A. Get used to that word, lacuna, means something lacking, something, a gap, something missing. The patristic authors from Origen, from Bardason, really, all the way up to Ariagena, saw the universal horizon of the redemption of Christ, but they didn't emphasize the depth of the center, which is Christ's God-forsakenness that he went through at the cross, the depth We want to hit both the depth of the center and the breadth and the width of the universal horizon. One without the other doesn't cover the gospel. It doesn't really bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a lacuna even among the patristic theologians who are magnificent and thank God on this Thanksgiving day they've been recovered and their emphasis on recapitulation rediscovered by more and more people. Thank God for it. I hope that when I'm dead and gone and with the Lord, that some will fill in the lacuna of my message, the gaps, because we can't all get it all. It's kind of arrogant to think we can. The very fact that Paul identifies himself first as a slave of Christ Jesus identifies him with the prophets. Amos 3, 5, and 6, compared to, with Romans 10, make that Revelation 10, 6 and 7. Remember the reference to the slaves of God in the announcement of the mystery, God's mystery in Revelation 10, 6 and 7. But he also identifies by identifying himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. He is identifying Christ Jesus with Yahweh, who is the covenant God of Israel. Now, what about the resurrection from the dead? See how fast we're moving? It's not just one word at a time. The resurrection from the dead. It doesn't say the resurrection of the dead. It says Jesus Christ was marked out and placed in a horizon, a limited horizon, an extremely limited horizon by his resurrection from the dead. That's uniquely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is to be distinguished from the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ was resurrected out from among the dead. He is a resurrected man from the dead. There will be a resurrection of the dead, which is all the dead, when Christ comes in his parousia. So the resurrection from the dead in power by the spirit of sanctification is to be distinguished from the resurrection of the dead. And yet it is also inseparable from that 
general resurrection, as Paul showed in 1 Corinthians 15, especially verses 12 through 17. So it's distinguishable, it's distinguished Christ's resurrection from the dead, from the resurrection of the dead, but it's also inseparable from the resurrection of the dead. His resurrection from the dead, in other words, is the guarantee that all will be resurrected from the dead unto life, unto his own life in resurrection. So the unique resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first fruits from the dead, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 23, radically distinguished Jesus Christ from all the dead and designated him to be uniquely the Son of God. The Son of God, again, that term, the Son of God, has to do with the announcement of the Father of the newly ascendant king. When a king ascended, when a, when a king was ready to go off and another king was ready to ascend, that king, with the ascendant king, was called the Son of God. God the Father doesn't die, but he announces the ascendancy of his son as king. That's what Psalm 2-7 is all about. That's what Psalm 110-1 is about, more obliquely, but even more importantly in, in another sense. So again, the Son of God, that term, has to do with the announcement of the Father of the newly ascendant king, his son. As is clear from Psalm 2-7, please note that Psalms figure in the interpretation of Romans more than what any commentators have previously thought, the Psalms. And I'll show you that, I think, beginning on Sunday morning, maybe. So then, I'm just being careful when I say that, not to, to go along with James. He said, don't say you'll do this for a year. Say, if God is willing, you'll do this or that. So I'm just saying that. God is willing. So then, in the distribution of labor, and I'm closing with this, I'm beginning to close anyways, in the distribution of labor among the imperial slaves of God, and there is a distribution of labor among the imperial slaves of Christ. We're all slaves of Christ. There's a distribution of labor. Distribution of labor is the thing that makes a family work. It's the thing that makes a business work. It's the thing that makes a church work. If the pastor or any other person is the omnicompetent doer of all things, there is not a distribution of labor and there will be a burnout on the part of that person who is omnicompetent. We're moving into a time in American's history, America's history, where the state is to become omnicompetent. When the state is omnicompetent, you have totalitarianism. And we have the most naive generations asking for it and begging for it. That's one of the reasons why we have perilous times. There's something worse than terror, and it's tyranny. Terror and tyranny are the twin towers of evil in our time, of sociological and political evil in our time. But there are people that genuflect to the terrorists and to their God and to their religion. Genuflect, I say, apologetically, kowtow, I say, because of fear. 
Just a social comment, no extra charge. There's no charge for any of this anyways, as you know. There are free will offerings. The emphasis is on free will. So, the distribution, in that distribution of labor among the imperial slaves of God, distinctive is the labor and service of a herald. Hark the herald, Angelos. A proclaimer of the king's ascendancy. In this case, ascendancy to the throne of the universe. Apostle is Paul's calling by the irresistible summons of Jesus Christ. There was no resisting that summons. Paul didn't say, I think I'll choose to be an apostle. Paul didn't decide to be an apostle. He was called to be an apostle. You don't choose to be saved. You don't choose to be elected. God chooses you, and it's irresistible. It's, it's great. You can't resist that. God calls things into being that don't exist, and he resurrects the dead. He does that. So even when I use the word distribution of labor, I'm talking about us laboring, but God in us willing and doing at the same time. In the distribution of labor, there is the herald. Apostle is Paul's calling by the irresistible summons of Jesus Christ. Paul's announcement is in sync with the voices in heaven. Reminds me of another Christmas hymn, Join the Chorus of the Skies. Paul's message joins the chorus of the skies. What is the chorus of the skies? In my favorite hymn, O Holy Night. What is the chorus of the skies? It's the voices in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 that chime in together and say, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. The kingdom of God because God is the king. The kingdom of his Christ because Christ is his ascendant king. The announcement of the gospel is the announcement of the ascendancy of Jesus Christ to be Lord of the living and the dead, to be the Lord of all, to be the king of God's kingdom, to be the universal king. And there are some now aspects that are going to come into focus in the already not yet focus of Paul that are going to shock you. But God has called me to both awe and audacity. If you have awe, your proclamation has audacity. Now, our previous president wrote a book called The Audacity of Hope. I love that. There's an audacity about hope. We hope with an audacious expectation. Not that mankind will pull himself up by his bootstraps, but that God will reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth through his son by the blood of his cross. That's audacity. So Paul's announcement is in sync with the voices in the heaven and the apocalypse of John who shouted the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, Revelation eleven fifteen. 
Romans as an epistle written not with ink, but with the spirit of God. Romans is an epistle written not only with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It includes significantly the broadcast of the universal dominion of God and his Messiah King. That's the gospel. The obedience which is faith then, and this is where I'm beginning to do an inclusio of our own message. The obedience which is faith is not the choice of those who hear the gospel of God's Son. It is what is evoked by the hearing of the message. Listen carefully to this now. New things and old things together. Romans ten seventeen. for faith comes about. Paul says, I'm called so that for the coming about of faith, the bringing about of faith in all the nations, Faith comes about by the message, not the hearing. The word hearing there is what is heard, akoe, the message. Faith is evoked by the message. And by the message, Paul says, I mean the message about Christ. This message evokes faith. It elicits faith. Kindles it. Romans 10, 17. This message, Paul goes on to say in 10, 18, has already gone out into all the cosmos. If the message has already gone out into all the cosmos, it's a message that's gone into all the world evoking faith as obedience. As 1 Timothy 3, 16 says, speaking of the pastorals, in speaking of the great mystery Confessedly, he says, great is the mystery that evokes godliness, usabaya, that evokes or elicits a spiritual life, we could say, that honors Christ. As 1 Timothy 3.16 says, in speaking of the great mystery that evokes godliness, God in the flesh, and I'm only reiterating part of this verse, which is Christ, was preached among the Gentiles and believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. Listen carefully. As the remnant of Israel by the election of grace, and emphatically not by works, because that would eliminate grace from being grace, as the remnant of Israel by the election of grace and not of works, was indicative of the salvation of all of Israel. Romans 11, 5 and 6. Romans eleven twenty five and 26. That remnant doesn't mean that only a remnant will be saved. That remnant is indicative of the whole being saved. If the remnant according to the election of grace in Israel is indicative of the salvation of all of Israel, then those who have believed among all the nations in the cosmos is not indicative of a segment of humanity being saved, but the indication by believed on in the cosmos is an indication of the salvation of the whole cosmos. Now, 
I know, that's audacity, isn't it? It's audacity that's backed up by the scriptures, as we'll see. This is part of what I mean when I say we'll weave into Romans content from the pastoral epistles with effective interpretive impact. So believing on Christ in the world, 1 Timothy 3.16, is indicative of the certainty of the believing on him by the whole world. Ultimately. And this is why we read that every eye will see him in Revelation 1.7, even those that pierced him. This is why we read that every knee will bend to him. And every tongue confess allegiance to him. Or as a new translation by a universalist scholar says, every tongue will gladly acknowledge him in Philippians 2.10 and 11. which is a reference to Isaiah 45, 23, and compared with Romans 14, 11, Paul says, every tongue will give praise to me, says Yahweh. So finally, Paul's purpose is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with the effect of eliciting the obedience of faith in hearers in all the nations that he wishes to preach the gospel to those who are already saints. I always wondered, why does he want to go to Rome and preach the gospel to people that are already saints? He said, I want to come and preach the gospel there. Why? Faith has already been elicited in these people. The reason Paul wants to preach the gospel to those that are already saints in Rome, in Romans 1-7, means that the obedience of faith is an ongoing operation by which the members, the very parts of the bodies of the saints, become weapons of righteousness in an apocalyptic eschatological war. Romans 6.13. Rather than weapons of sin, capital S-I-N. You'll notice that these are capitalized because sin, in Paul's view, His homardiology is about sin as a superhuman power from which we need to be redeemed and liberated, which can only happen by God's ability, God's power, the gospel. Ultimately, then, the obedience of faith or the obedience that is faith is, and here it is, the end is a participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ by which the ungodly are rectified and the world and all of creation is liberated and transformed. That's enough for tonight, enough to suggest, enough to open up questions. And to anticipate answers, we thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And on this eve of what our nation calls Thanksgiving, we give you thanks. I thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ, 
Thank you. And I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. The victory over powers that were too powerful for us. And I thank you, Father, that you've allowed us this open door, an open door to study Romans, the epistle, to read Romans with the light on, and to be awakened so that the light of Christ shines upon us. And we experience in some meaningful measure the power and the life and the living of the coming age. We ask this, we thank you for this rather.